Thank you all for joining us today. It's uh, nice to be together again, and uh, I've enjoyed the um, evening service that we've been having the last couple of weeks, and it's a, uh, another opportunity for us to be together and encourage one another to fellowship with one another, to worship God together and hear his word proclaimed. I, was, uh, I saw uh, recently a, a comment by another pastor noticing the same thing, that because of what had uh, come about during COVID and the, the shutdown and all that kind of stuff, that it has caused the body of Christ to desire more to be together. And so this was a church also that had uh, made some additions uh, because of the uh, shutdowns and whatnot, the restrictions because of COVID and all that, that uh, actually coming out of it, they are more desirous to be together and more desirous for more opportunity to be together. And so I feel that same thing. And uh, I hope you do too. It's been a blessing for us to be able to join together on Sunday evenings. And so we would invite you again to come. And uh, it's a much smaller setting. It's, it's uh, um, this is down there. And so it's entirely less formal. <laughs> I don't know why that makes a difference, but somehow it does. Uh, but we enjoy being together and we would invite you. It's at 6 o'clock. We're usually done by 7. And uh, so we would love to see you there right now since it's October we are discussing aspects of the Reformation because we celebrate uh, Reformation Day on October 31st because of what went on 500 plus years ago uh, on that day, which sort of kicked off the Reformation. And so we as Protestants, we as um, Protestants nowadays want to recall that and bring that to mind. And so uh, I would encourage you for uh, that study that we've been doing. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. And we... Uh, we'll cover some more of this uh, passage today, and, uh, and then hopefully the, the plan is that only one more sermon on Romans chapter 9, maybe. We'll see. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not promising. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's a possibility, you know. Anything's possible, right? Romans chapter 9, and uh, we are going to uh, be reading today from... Verses 24 uh, through 29 will be actually the passages, the passage, the verses that we're going to uh, discuss more particularly. But I want to start reading back at the beginning of the chapter. And that's not just because I want to cover it all again, but because he's drawing things together. So Romans 9 and verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ, says Paul. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So the question there about Israel and believing and unbelieving Jews. And we jump down to verse 22 of the same chapter. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but 
also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will, rem- will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Our Father, we worship you this morning. Father, we loved worshiping you in song, lifting praises to you, declaring your goodness and your majesty, and rejoicing in this peace with you that we get to have in Christ. We pray that you would be honored by our worship. We pray even now as we open up your word, as we hear from your word about you and what you are like and and about ourselves and what we're like and, and about how we can know you. I pray that you would be honored in this time and I pray that you would move by your spirit using your word proclaimed to minister to us even this morning. Father, we recognize that you are holy and that we are to love you with all of our capacity. We recognize that we are to love one another as ourselves. And Father, we confess that we have done neither of those. We confess that to you as sin. We ask that you would forgive us. And we rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Father, be honored even in the proclamation of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we read from earlier in chapter 9 because we see Paul coming back around and addressing the same sort of issues that he started the chapter with. And so we see that though sometimes it takes Paul a while to get to the point and and thus it takes me even longer to get to the point sometimes, that he's actually coming back around and answering the problem or the question that he started off with in chapter 9, which is about the, the, the Jews and how come so few of them were believing the gospel. If this gospel of salvation in Christ is true, then why do so few Jews believe it? And that was a question that concerned Paul. He knew it was an objection that was raised to his ministry and had been raised many times before, no doubt. And it was a question that was of concern to him because of his love for his people, his kinsmen, his his brothers, his fellow Israelites. And so he's been working through this discussion in all of chapter 9, talking about God's working in salvation And he hasn't been just on a tangent. He's not just chasing rabbits. He's working his way back around to answering why it is 
that so few Jews are believing the gospel and why the church is made up so, so much of Gentiles. If Jesus himself was a Jew, Paul himself ministering as a Jew, then why is the church growing more and more to be a Gentile church? And so he has been arguing about this topic of election and God's working in history, God's working in uh, saving people. And so we get down to uh, our paragraph here where we start. And and in verses 22 and 23, we see that, that Paul is saying there that God's purpose in election is to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, that all of this working that God has been doing in, in saving people, in his work of election, in, in all of that that God has done, which takes place on a personal level, is for a particular purpose. It's to glorify himself. It's to demonstrate the riches of God's glory to vessels of mercy. He says, and that has taken place on an individual level, but it's also on a larger level as he comes back around at the end of the chapter to talk about Israel and Gentiles as groups. And so we see that God is working that direction. And I want to call to our attention as we start off working through our passage today that uh, that great honor that we have in this place, that, that God, in working through election, does so in order to make known the riches of His glory to you and to me. God wants to put on display for us His glory, the depth of it, how rich it is, how wonderful it is, how merciful it is. And He does so for His people to put on display for vessels of mercy who were prepared beforehand for glory. God is essentially showing Himself off. He's, he's showing us what He's really like. And He does so through the working of His salvation. And particularly, as we've been discussing here, even His work of election. And so, we need to understand the tone in which this is given. That it's, it's, it's God revealing to us, making known to us, showing to us so that we would desire and we would value and we would glory in His own glory. That's a good thing for us, that God would show Himself to us in that way. And so He says that's the purpose, that's the direction of all of this working, that He can show off His own glorious grace to us. And and so our first point in your outline there is vessels of glory. And that is because that's who He's showing Himself off to. That's, that's, That's us. We are those who are vessels of mercy that have received mercy for the purpose of receiving glory, for the purpose of glorying in God's glory. He says vessels of mercy, verse 24, are those who are prepared and called. He says in verse 23, which he, speaking of vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand, even us whom he has called. This idea of being called is an important one in Paul's writing. It doesn't mean invited as if uh, you, can re- you can reject the invitation. It's calling. It's something more specific than that. Everywhere in Paul's writing, when he uses this word calling or call, it's effectual, meaning it accomplishes it. He doesn't just 
say, hey, would you like to come over? When he summons you, you come. It works that way every time. Romans uh, 8, 28, and 30, we, we uh, talked about that there, that, that uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then down in verse 30 in that same chapter, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So in Paul's writing everywhere, to be called means to be a Christian. To be called into the faith. Not just summoned, not just invited, but you actually make the journey. He would say in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. And Paul would say of himself in Galatians 1.15, He says, he set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. This calling is a powerful calling. Nowhere in Paul's writings will you see this word calling refer to a non-Christian. Everyone who is called is a believer. Many of you are too young to remember life without cell phones. And those of us who are old enough to remember life without cell phones, long for the old days in many ways. And uh, when we, uh, you know, cell phones were already in existence. We moved to Russia the second time in, in 2007, and everybody had a cell phone, and we had to have a cell phone. Well, the, the culture in Russia was a little bit different, that when the phone rang, you answered it, like no matter what. That we actually saw, uh, we were in church one time, and the pastor was preaching, and the, his phone rang, and he answered it. Yeah, it would be embarrassing enough if my phone rang and I hadn't muted it, right? If I hadn't turned it off, I would be all embarrassed. No, he picked it up and answered it in the middle of his sermon. And, and that's because in Russian culture, when the phone rings, you answer it, always. And, and if you didn't, if you were indisposed, if you were driving, or if you were in the bathroom and, and someone called and you didn't answer, the next time you talked to them, they would say, hey, I called you, you didn't answer. You're supposed to answer. You see, they have a, a greater expectation of answering that phone when the call comes. I, you know, some of you tried to call me and you realize I don't always have that same standard on myself. If I don't recognize the number, I'm going to wait till the voicemail comes. If voicemail doesn't come, great, I missed that one. It was probably a robocall anyway, right? <laughs> Seems to be happening more and more this, this time of year. But in, the, the point is that in Russia, when a call comes, you answer it. And when God issues his saving call to a person, that person always answers it. That call is always answered. There is no place in Paul's writing where that calling speaks of an unbeliever as if the call came and they rejected it. So Paul says about us, these vessels of glory, that they were prepared and they were called. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. First of all, these called ones, these vessels of mercy, come from an expected source. God has been working with the Jews for all of the history of the Bible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, we see that that God enters into relationship with the nation of Israel. Now, When you're reading the Bible and you learn more about Israel, you you learn that actually that in itself is a surprise. That God didn't choose Israel because they were mighty. 
or extra wise or particularly faithful. He refers to them again and again as stiff-necked people. There's, there wasn't anything exceptional about them that would cause God's love to come their direction. And actually, if you think about the first who were called, an old man and an old woman who didn't have any kids, Abraham and Sarah, and God calls them. So that very work right there, the fact that God would work with the nation of Israel in the beginning is very surprising. But then as salvation history continues throughout the Old Testament, and by the time we get to the New Testament, it's no surprise that God would work with the Jews. It's no surprise that God would save from among the Jews, particularly given the promises that God had made to to Abraham back in Genesis and continued on. And so Paul says here in Romans chapter 9, that the vessels of glory, that's even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, we've come to expect people to be called from the Jews into relationship with God. That's the expected source, but also from a surprising source, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As you've read your Bible, as you've read from the beginning, and you see God's working, there has been a particular focus on the nation of Israel. There's been a particular development, a particular degree of revelation to the people of Israel. He has sent prophets primarily to the people of Israel. The writers of the Bible were writing about Israel, from Israel, and for Israel. So we've come to expect that. But here we have a situation where where God is working in a way that perhaps we didn't expect. He's working in a way, particularly in a way that the Jews of that time did not anticipate. And God often works in ways like that. You know, if if we think about it, there are children in our midst and there are children in children's church right now. And you expect a child that grows up in the church. You expect a child that grows up in a Christian home to be a Christian. That's not always the case. I'm aware of that. But you expect that. And when it happens, you don't think, wow, that was amazing and out of left field that God did that. No, you expect that a child who grows up in the church is going to be a Christian. It's what we expect. What is surprising to us is when God moves in unexpected areas and he redeems people that we would never anticipate that he would redeem. I remember not all that long ago when... China began to open up a little bit. And we began to learn a little bit more about the church in China and what had been going on in that part of the world. And the expectation was, wow, you know, with, the, with all of the, the, the oppression from, from communism and, and all of that kind of stuff, the church, if there is a church, will be pretty weak and spindly. And what did we find? We, we found that God had, had been at work behind that closed door For decades and decades, he had been bringing to Christ. And we found that not only was there the occasional church, but there were many churches. There were even many healthy churches. There were were Christians sharing the gospel with other Christians. There were Christians being baptized and discipled. That God was at work in a surprising area. And so, looking at some statistics on the history of the church in China this week, it was interesting to learn that in 2007 about 5% of the Chinese population were Christians. That's an impressive percentage for a place that was locked up behind a closed door for decades. 
Five percent. Well, five percent. How many people that could, could that really be? Well, you're talking Chinese numbers? Sixty million. About 60 million Christians in China in 2007. There were as many members in 2007, there were as many Christians in China as there were members of the Communist Party in China. Crazy. God had been at work even though the door was shut. He had been working behind closed doors. And they say that if the average growth from 1980 to the present continues, that we can expect by 2030 the population of Christians in China to be about 300 million people. That's nearly the population of our nation. Now, those are, you know, rough figures and, and estimations and things like that. But, but the point is, is, is made that we expect God to work in certain ways. They're preaching the gospel in the United States and there are churches. You would think the church would be growing and, and there would be Christians everywhere. Well, behind the closed door of communism in China, of course not. There won't be Christians there. And God was at work bringing people to himself, planting churches, discipling Christians, glorifying himself even in that place. God was at work in surprising ways. And as we come back to our text, that's, that's what we find going on. That for the first century Jew, he expected God to work amongst the Jews. In fact, that's the very objection is why aren't more Jews being saved? Paul says these vessels of glory don't only come from amongst the Jews. They come, come from amongst the Gentiles also. God even works in those surprising areas. So this, for many, was a surprising source that God is at work growing His church. This surprising work of God's grace amongst the Gentiles, though it was a surprise to many, it should not have been a surprise. The Old Testament prophets talked about it, and that's where Paul goes uh, when he quotes in these next couple of verses from the book of Hosea. So if you will keep your hand here in Romans and turn towards the Old Testament, the first book of the Minor Prophets is Hosea. It comes immediately after the book of Daniel, and it has a lot of things in common with the book of Isaiah, which was a contemporary. The book of Hosea. Very interesting story. I'm going to start, uh, I'm in chapter 1. I just want to read verses 2 and 3 and then uh, kind of explain a little of what's going on. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so you've got this parable that actually Hosea's life was like a parable. The things that God was doing through him, he was going to use Hosea's family to be an example, to be a parable, to be a picture for the nation to look at. And you caught the key word in there. And it was not a kind key word. It was about their own adulteries. The fact that they were prostituting themselves as a nation to the surrounding nations. And so he says, he says, go and take this woman, poor Gomer, that's how she's identified as a, a wife of whoredom. And uh, her name is rough enough anyway, Gomer. Maybe it's beautiful in Hebrew. I don't know, but it sounds less so to me. They're going to have children. 
And they're going to give particular names to their children. And the first child is named Jezreel, and that's for particular purposes, and that's, that's a portent of judgment coming. And the second child is a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. So you're going to have a child, you're going to name this child No Mercy. Because God will have no more mercy upon Israel. Specifically, he's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, King, uh, Israel versus Judah. In the book of Hosea, you can see that instance, there are instances where Judah is being blessed. Judah is receiving mercy, but Israel, the northern kingdom, is not. And so have a child, a daughter, and name her Lo-Ruhamah. No mercy, because I will no more show mercy to Israel. And have another child and name this second child or this third child now Lo-Ami, not my people. Because God says to Israel, you are not my people and I am not your God. What a bummer of a ministry to have. What a bummer of a thing to name your child. You know, some of us have given names to our children that it'll be mispronounced and misspelled forever. (laughs) These names are rough. No mercy. Here's my child, no mercy. He's going to make a lot of friends at school <laughs> with, a, with a name like that. And so you have this situation going on already back in, back in uh, chapter 1 where the, the ministry of Hosea is spelled out already in his family. Go and find a prostitute or one who would be a prostitute, Gomer. Make her your wife. Have children and name your children these particular names that are pronunciation of, pronouncements of judgment upon the northern tribes. It's a scary thing. His ministry was, a, was a, a scary and frightening ministry that he had going on. And so you have what happens here that he uh, has this, this ministry, this uh, family, and then you have pronounce, uh, pronouncements of judgment and things that are going to come in chapter 2. And here's what's going to happen. So just so you know the end of the story and what's going to happen, turn to chapter 3 of Hosea. In his own life, his own wife runs away. And she sells herself to these other men. And God says, Hosea, go redeem her and bring her back to yourself. She doesn't deserve it. She is what you think she is. But go and redeem her. She is a representative. She is a picture of my people. And you see in chapter 3 of Hosea, verses 4 and 5, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So his whole life, his whole ministry, his whole family was a picture of what God was going to do with Israel. There will come judgment and there will come statements of, you are not my people and you will not receive mercy. But redemption will come. You can anticipate that in the future, a redemption will come. Okay, so that's, that's Hosea. Now go back to Romans chapter 9. Keep your, keep your thumb there in, in Hosea. We'll probably return there. You see a quotation, verse 25, as indeed he says, to, uh, says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. The statement about who would no longer be his people 
about who is not my people. Back in Hosea, that was the northern kingdom. That was, that was the northern kingdom. And God saying to them, you are not my people, and I am not your God. You are not my people. Well, who else is not my people? Who else does not belong to God? Who else is, is not God's people? Gentiles. The Gentiles. And you may not expect that reading in Hosea, but that's exactly how Paul applies it. He says, when the northern tribes became not my people, they became just like you and me. Just like Gentiles. Not God's people. Outside. Cast out. Thrown out. Just like, you know, we, we live in the... Uh, people who moved to Fallon may be surprised to learn this, but we are the oasis of Nevada. You can tell because all of the green everywhere, right? Well, it's all relative, okay? <laughs> Drive, you know, east and north for a while and you'll find less green than we have here. We are the oasis. And why is that? Water. Irrigation. You put water on a field and it turns green and you can grow. And if you remove the water from the field... What happens? We've seen it happen in the last 30 years in our valley a lot. You remove the water and it goes right back to the way it was. And that's what's happening in the northern kingdom. God was saying, I'm removing the water. And they return to be on par with the nations around them. They start to look like and be just like the surrounding fields, the surrounding nations. And so... You have this situation where God is saying to them, you are not my people. But that's not the end of it. That's not the end of it. Now that he has removed the water, now that it has returned to its natural state of, you know, scrub brush and sand, now that it's gone to be like the nations around it, then what does God say? I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. So after that statement of judgment, after what happens there to the nations, then to to that northern kingdom particularly, what is he going to do? He's going to redeem. And Paul's going to say he's not just going to redeem people from those northern kingdoms. He's not just going to redeem people from Israel. Not just redeem Jews. He's going to redeem people broadly. He's going to draw from all of the people who are not my people. And that's you and me. He's going to redeem people from Jew and Gentile alike. And so you see, this isn't just a statement of judgment, but redemption is coming. But the redemption, when it comes, is greater, is broader than anticipated back in Hosea. When the redemption comes, it's not just God redeeming Jews. It's God redeeming Jews and Gentile alike. So that the redemption has spread, it has grown, the grace has spread and it has grown. And so we read Paul say, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So they are called my people and they are called beloved. God's hand of mercy, his hand of love had been removed so that the northern kingdoms, the northern tribes of Israel became just like the rest of us. And God says, okay, now you who are not beloved, I'm going to show you my love, my redeeming love in Christ. How powerful and how precious is the love of God and how much we do not deserve it. Sometimes, often in the world and sometimes in churches, you will hear that 
that uh, somehow because of being human, we deserve God's love. We've earned it. We've, we've got that place so, so that God loves us just because of that. We need to understand when God shows his love, it is out of mercy. It is despite what we have to offer. It is despite what we have contributed. We are just like these northern kingdoms. We are those who had not received God's love, had not received and certainly did not deserve God's mercy. We were wrapping up the Gospel of John uh, in a manner of speaking in Sunday school class this morning, and we were talking about how John refers to himself throughout not as John. He never calls himself John. He refers to himself as the beloved disciple. And we kicked around ideas of why that might be the case. And one of them that really struck, one of them that I think is to the point, is that John realized the most important thing about me is not my name, it's not my position, it's not what I've done, it's that God loves me. The disciple whom Jesus loved, of all the people that Jesus hung out with, this was the one. Jesus had special demonstration of love toward John, and John thought, that's all. If you don't remember anything else about me in the whole world, remember God's love for me. And so here you have pictured in Hosea and that Paul is bringing back up here, a people who were unloved have become beloved. If you are in Christ, you need to know the most important thing about you is God's active, saving, redemptive love for you. That's what we rejoice in. Not what I've done, not what I could become. God's love for me. So they are called the beloved, but he doesn't stop there. Who was Her who was uh, not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people... How how that must have stung. Can you imagine being the recipient of Hosea's message? God says to you, you are not my people. You are no longer my people. How that must have stung to hear that message. But Hosea goes on. There they will be called sons of the living God. Sons of God. They were called my people, they were called beloved, but now more specifically they're called sons. Not just children. Some of our versions translate it sons and daughters or children or something like that, and I understand why they're doing that and I appreciate that. However, the idea of being a son in this culture implies not just that you are an offspring, that you are even a beloved descendant, it's an heir. The heir is the son. Sons of the living God are heirs of God. And what do you think sons of the living God will inherit? Life. Inheriting life from God. So you see how Paul even rearranges these verses. If you look at your footnotes, you can see that the earlier quotations here come from Hosea 2 and the later ones come from Hosea 1. Paul is willing to flip them around because he's trying to make the point that, yes, we are God's people and that's a wonderful thing, but it's, it's, it's tighter than that. It's more important than that. It's more powerful than that. It's the beloved that God has called you beloved. You, you who were not beloved, now you have become beloved, but it's better than that. You who 
were not mine at all, have become sons of God, heirs of God, heirs of eternal life. This is a picture that Paul is talking about here in these verses. This, this is a picture of the gospel call. We were not his people. We had not received mercy. We had not received his love. We were on the outside looking in. We were at enmity with him. Not just unknown to him. We were known to him. We were on his list as his enemies. But in that context, to those people, God says, you who were not my people will become my people. You who had not received mercy, you who were not beloved, your name was not beloved. I'm going to change your name to beloved. And you who are on the outside excluded, in Jesus Christ, my son, God says, I will make you sons of the living God. That we were on the outside, we were at enmity with God, we were in opposition to him, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were out there. But God didn't leave it that way. God could have executed judgment on us, but He didn't. Instead, He sent His Son and executed judgment in His Son. So that in Christ, because of what Christ has done, because of His obedience, where we've disobeyed and His death on the cross, so that we wouldn't have to die in punishment for our sins, in Christ... By trusting in Him, we have that inheritance, His track record, that salvation. So we who are on the outside, as not my people, have become my people. We who are on the outside, had not received mercy, have become my beloved. And we who are God's enemies have been made sons of the living God. That's what the gospel does. That's what God does in the gospel is He draws people from enmity into His own family as His very heirs in Christ. And Paul is saying here, that's what's going on. Why so many Gentiles in the kingdom? Because of God's mercy. Because of God's mercy. And He said beforehand that He would do this all the way back in Hosea. He said this was going to happen, that God was going to make those who were not His people His people, and those who were not beloved, beloved. He had already said this was going to happen, and now we're seeing it. It is purely by the mercy of God. It is purely God's saving work. If you know Christ this morning, that is by the mercy of God at work saving you. And so Christians ought to be the most grateful people, realizing what what we were and what we've been saved from and what we've been saved for. And so those are the people, the vessels of glory. Many of them are taken from amongst the Gentiles, but there's also a remnant of Israel that is preserved. We've just read about how many of the vessels of mercy are taken from the nations, from the Gentiles. But what about Israel? Our chapter started with the question, but what about Israel? Why so few Jews? Okay, there are a lot of Gentiles. That's fine. Why so few Jews? Well, Paul has been working through this passage through chapter 9, explaining to us God's sovereign work in saving people, that He has been at work in people's lives and in history 
arranging salvation, bringing it about. And he says in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. You remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when the nation of Israel, you couldn't even really call it that at the time, consisted entirely of one old man and one old woman with no kids and no prospects of having kids. And now look at all these centuries later and millions and millions of Jews as numerous as the sand of the sea. You'd, you'd think that this is an expectation. This is, this is God blessing them that they have become so numerous. And indeed it is. But listen, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So there are multitudes, but there's a remnant that will be saved. There's a number within that large multitudinous number that will be saved, that will be drawn to God, that will be redeemed. It's, it's a portion of what's going to come. Now, this is a quotation from Isaiah, uh, from um, Isaiah chapter 10, which uh, we looked at that uh, not long ago, Isaiah chapter 10. And here you have a statement made to the nation of Israel that the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to bring judgment upon you and you're going to suffer at their hands. And though there are multitudes of you, Isaiah 10 and verse 22, yet only a remnant will be saved. Only a remnant will survive that and will return to the land. And so there there are two expectations, two fulfillments of that. One is the immediate one that happens in the immediate history to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 10 and following. But a second one is much larger than that. And that's our topic that Paul is dealing with today in Romans chapter 9. Paul had asked why, if the gospel of Jesus is true and biblical, why so few Jews have believed it? And he gives an answer here. The answer has tears. Though we are saddened by the fact, it should not surprise us that that's the case, since Isaiah had said that it would happen. Isaiah had said only a remnant would be saved. This is... This is what God is doing in the broader course of salvation history. Now, he's going to wrap this up more in Romans chapter 11. And we're not going to get there today, and I don't want to talk about it too much. But we can see that the apostasy of the nation of Israel, what did it do? Drove the gospel to the Gentiles. And God saved many, many Gentiles. What's to happen with the, the nation of Israel? What's to happen with the Jews? Well, they're to see, wait a minute, these Gentiles are worshiping our God. Our God has entered into covenant with these Gentiles and that they would be drawn to jealousy and that they themselves would return to God. That's the broader picture of what's going on here. God is at work. But he wasn't at work primarily. And in the end, he wasn't ultimately at work in the visible church, as it were. Visible nation of Israel, that's where God's working, right? God was doing something much broader. And it turns out that a lot of those part of visible Israel were not vessels of glory, were not vessels of mercy. And there's a a caution here for us at this point that being involved in a church somewhere, being a part of the visible church, does not guarantee membership as a vessel of mercy. A vessel of glory. There were millions who thought that. Hey, I'm a Jew. We're sons of Abraham. We're, we're in with God. 
And then Paul came and preached the gospel and they found out, well, I don't want anything to do with that. They actually weren't children of Abraham. They actually weren't children of God. And so Paul moves on to talk about justice and judgment. And this is continuing on in Isaiah. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. In verse 28 of Romans 9, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. I mean, Paul, can't you get past judgment? Can't you just already talk about something else? But Christian, you and I should never get too far from understanding that God is just and his justice has consequences upon us. We need to understand this. Not so that we live in fear of God's judgment in the sense that it's going to be directed towards me. But if I ever get to the point in my life, and it'll happen several times a day usually, where I get to the point where I think I've got what it takes. I can earn God's favor. I can keep God's favor. I can toe the line. I can do the thing. I can measure up. I mean, yeah, God took care of a lot of stuff in the past, but I think I got this now. I get to that point. I need to realize, like the nation of Israel needed to realize, My works are tainted, and they are unable to secure the blessing of God. They are unable to secure God's favor upon me and unable to retain God's favor upon me. And I'm drawn once again to realize, all right, I think I can trust my works. That's bad, because if I am going to trust my works, my works will not measure up to God's justice. My works do not measure up to God's standard. So what do I do? Again, I look to Christ whose works measured up to God's standard, whose life was obedience, whose righteousness was perfect and complete. And so I look to him and I, and I realize again, I've got to have his record. And I've got to have my sins expunged by his death on the cross, dying in my place to pay that penalty for me. And so, so my own realization of God's judgment And his standard drives me again to the cross and to look to Christ and to find peace in him. There is no peace in me. There is no peace in me stacking up my works or doing my things. There is not to be found peace there. Understanding God's judgment, understanding God's justice, understanding his perfection, his standard, drives me out of myself to where there is peace, which is only in Christ. And so I look to him and I rejoice again in him that his record measures up, that his death counts for mine. And I rejoice in Christ and I revel in Christ. So no, Paul doesn't ever get very far from justice and judgment, nor should we. Nor should we. Not because I I think I'm going to endure God's judgment. I am in Christ and will not endure God's judgment. But when I look at my works and I begin to trust them, I need to remember God's standard is high, all the way high. And it should drive me out of myself and drive me to Christ where I can find peace. He continues on with this quotation from Isaiah in verse 29. Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It's only by mercy 
that even the Jews were saved. We look at this perhaps and we think, ah, oh, you know, there were so many, so many Jews and the nation was so numerous and, and so large. And boy, how mean it was that, you know, that God would pare them down to just a remnant. That's looking at it exactly backwards. If it weren't for God's mercy, there wouldn't have even been a remnant. There would have been nothing left. If God would have exercised justice upon us, we would have all been destroyed. You and I would have all been destroyed if God had exercised his justice upon us. Even the fact that he saves a remnant is just evidence of his mercy. The fact that he saves a remnant of the Jews, the fact that he saves a remnant of the Gentiles, the fact that he saves anyone at all, it's not that the Jews are any worse than the Gentiles or vice versa. That's not the point. The point is when it gets right down to it, God is just and we are not. And we stand guilty before him. And the fact that he redeems anyone is purely by his mercy. And so when we look and we see there is, there's a remnant. If the Lord had not left us offspring, we would have been destroyed. If God had judged us based upon his justice for our works and our lives and our hearts, he would not have left us offspring because we would be destroyed. There would be no remnant. And so we're drawn once again to the mercy of God and salvation. The fact that the Jews didn't deserve it, they deserved to have it taken away. The Gentiles didn't deserve it. They deserved to have it taken away. And God levels the playing field. And he says, okay, you who are not my people, let me make you my people in my son Christ. That's what's going on in this passage. That's the mercy of God on display. And we can wrestle with parts of it and we can struggle with parts of it. But God giving salvation at all is mercy and grace. His mercy and His grace accomplishing salvation for a remnant. And if it were not for God working and showing mercy, there would be no remnant. If it weren't for God working and showing mercy, you and I would not be a remnant. We would have to stand before God with our works to show. And how awful would that be? That's not what I want. And that's not what I want for anyone. To have to stand there with their own record in shame, knees knocking, realizing I deserve God's judgment. And in that, we have the mercy of God working. That God would send His Son, Jesus, to redeem a people from that plight. That He would, that God would reach out to a people who, who have no right to be called my people. And He calls them my people. That He would reach out to a people who have no right to God's mercy, to God's love. Those who are rightly called, no mercy. You will, no, you will not receive mercy from me. You are not beloved. He reaches out to them and he makes them his beloved. The fact that God would, would go to those people who were his enemies, who had made themselves his enemies by their own action, by their own nature, by their own lives, that he would go to them, to those who are his enemies, and he would make them that he would make us 
sons of the living God. That's the mercy of God. That's the mercy of God. And that's what we're to take away from this section. That we, we struggle perhaps with some of the hard things that are said here. But the, the wrap-up of it all is God has been showing mercy from the beginning. And Christian, He has shown you mercy. And we are to look to Him for that mercy. And we are to rejoice and celebrate and glory in and revel in that mercy that He has shown us. And for you who are not in Christ, for you who are still in the outside, for you who are still called not my people, for you who are still not beloved, for you who are still at enmity with God, unwilling to to break and put your trust in Him, the call for you this morning is to look to Him, to trust in His mercy for you. For you. And you could be made His people. And you will receive His love. And you will be made a son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, these words are heavy and powerful. And and they, they call us to worship. May we not be distracted by the historical considerations of how this salvation has come about. May we not be distracted by the theological arguments surrounding uh, your election and all the things that go with it. May we not be distracted by any of those things. May we not be distracted by big theological words or, uh, or our own wrestling match with Romans 9. May we rejoice in this salvation that we have in Christ. May we lift up your name. May we, may, we, may we glorify you as we glory in you. Father, we, we don't deserve to be called your children any more than anyone else. It is by your mercy that we get to be so. And so we, we worship you. We rejoice in you, and we give you honor, and we give you glory. Father, I pray that you would help us to go away this week with these thoughts on our minds as we recall your gracious work. May we look away from ourselves to you. May we not trust in or look to our own works, our own success, or lack of it. May we look to Christ and find mercy find peace, and find sonship there. Father, we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I encourage you for the uh, evening service tonight at 6 o'clock. If you want to pray with someone, there will be a family up here to pray with you. Let me close with these words from Ephesians chapter 3. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God bless you all and you are dismissed.